We're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can open your Bible there. We're going to look at verses 42 through 52 this morning. That's our text. The topic, Paul tells the Jews who reject the gospel that he and Barnabas will be a light sent instead to the Gentiles. Title of our message, You Light Up Their Lives. I was going to sing it, but we'll leave that to Debbie Boone. Who? Acts 13, 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're intrigued. It says here that an entire city came together to hear the word of God. And I pray that after our study and during the week, we would meditate on that idea, on that thought on that possibility that the city of Hanford, the city of Lemoore, those in Armona and Riverdale, all the surrounding areas, Lord, Leighton, that, that the whole city would come out to hear the word of God, that there could be such a hunger and a desire to learn about Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. This morning, Lord, we pray that you would attend to our service and minister from heart to heart. And we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You know you're getting old when you can remember staying at Motel 6. And it was called Motel 6 because rooms were $6.95 a night. I was thinking of Motel 6 because of the word light in the quote from Isaiah found in verse 47 of our text. Their slogan is, we'll leave the light on. It describes weary travelers who see the light and are drawn to its safety and comfort and rest. Paul said, the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light. He humbly considered himself and Barnabas as a light set in place by Jesus to draw world-weary travelers to salvation. It wasn't because he was an apostle or a missionary that Paul considered himself a light. It was because he was a Christian. Every Christian is a light in the world set in place to draw the world weary to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. In our verses, some people were drawn to the light while others were, in a sense, darkened by it. We can expect to experience similar results as lights that the Lord has set out in the world. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, encourage people who are drawn to your light to continue in the grace of God. And number two, warn people who are darkened by your light to consider the grace of God. First of all, in verses 42 and 43, encourage people who are drawn to your light to continue in the grace of God. We're obviously in the middle of Paul and Barnabas' visit to Antioch of Pisidia. They attended the Sabbath day synagogue service. Since Paul was a visiting rabbi, he was asked to deliver the weekly sermon. He delivered a message proving that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world promised in the Old Testament, promised in the Jewish Scriptures. And it created quite a stir. And so we pick that up in verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. The Gentiles mentioned here, we'll see in a moment, were proselytes, non-Jewish converts to the religion of Judaism. They hung back to talk with Paul and Barnabas after the services were ended. I would encourage you, if you can, if your schedule allows, hang around after church. Uh, we've made plenty of areas of fellowship available to you. Get to know some people. Hang out in the bookstore. Well, not today, but <laughs> hang out around the bookstore. Go and pound on the doors of the bookstore and tell the elves to hurry. But anyway, there's places, and just, you know, just hang around for a little while. Introduce yourself to somebody. Meet somebody, and, and just talk about the things of the Lord. Uh, talk about the sermon in a nice way. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Well, actually, I'm not kidding, but I have to say I'm kidding. Otherwise, it sounds weird. The Gentiles begged Paul and Barnabas to come back in a week and continue where their teaching left off. I can remember as a, a newborn Christian attending Calvary Chapel of Lake Arrowhead, uh, man, did we look forward to the next Sunday service. Uh, it was, you know, you sat there almost mesmerized by the Word of God, by the teaching of the Word of God, and just simple things that, that we didn't know because we'd never been told about the symbols and figures and types and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, wow, is it over? I tell them, please, it can't be over, please. And so then we'd go out to lunch, Pam and I, we'd talk about the things that we had learned, and we, we anxiously anticipated the following Sunday. Uh, and, and we, you know, it was nice. We didn't really have to beg our pastor. You know, we never called him and say, please come back next Sunday and teach. You know, I mean, we, we knew that he would. But, but they, these guys, they, you know, Paul was a visiting rabbi and he was like, Man, we, please, would you please come back, visit again? No one's ever spoken to us like this. Verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. At some point, the synagogue had to close its doors. Uh, the Jews and the Gentile proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas to where they were staying. And, and it's just, you know, the caretaker came in and says, hey, guys, you know, take this outside to the courtyard. And, and so Paul and Barnabas go out, and, and they, just, they just all hung around together. Hey, where are you guys hanging out? We'll buy you lunch, whatever. It you know, we want to hear more about these things. 
And it provided an opportunity for the missionaries to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I believe it means, that, uh, that they continued in the grace of God. It says, they were speaking to them about Jesus and persuading them to continue in the grace of God. The Amplified Bible trans that, uh, translates that same phrase. They talked to them and urged them to trust themselves to and stand fast in the unmerited favor and blessing of God. And so they were leading them to a full awareness of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we're not Jews, and so sometimes we miss just the tremendous uh, implications of some of these things. In the synagogue, week after week, their whole lives, uh, they had been told that they must achieve an almost impossible standard of righteous behavior by keeping God's law as interpreted by Jewish tradition. Visiting rabbi after visiting rabbi would speak and only add to their burden of rules and rites and rituals and regulations. A rabbi would come in and say, I, I have news for you about uh, righteousness and about tithing. You must tithe of your uh, seasonings if you are to be right with God. I mean, this is what many Pharisees did. And so if that was us this morning, you would be sighing right now because you'd be on your way home after church and one by one, oregano, paprika, you know, whatever your seasonings are in your seasoning cabinet, you'd pour them out. And you'd count out nine for you and one for God. Nine for you and one for God. It would probably take you a long time. You'd probably throw away the salt. But, uh, you know, it, it just, it's crazy. And then you'd, you'd go through the week burdened by some teaching like that, come back to the synagogue. The next visiting rabbi would get up and he'd say, well, yeah, that's great, but here's something more that you need to do in order to be right. You have to fast twice during the week and, and, and on and on. And so their entire life, they had been listening to these messages by visiting rabbis or their local rabbis that all piled burden after burden after burden upon them. And then Paul got up. And I'm sure no one was really even looking forward to the message by that point. I mean, you know, who, who wants to hear that? I mean, you're, you know, it's kind of you're part of a community. You've got to go to synagogue. Otherwise, they put pressure on you. But you don't want to hear that you're tired of hearing what a loser you are and how you'll never achieve righteousness. And then Paul gets up and he uses the Scripture alone and anointed by the Holy Spirit, proved that salvation was the gift of God. It was given to you. By grace, through faith. It could never be achieved by any works of righteousness that you could perform. Forget counting out your spices. Uh, don't worry about that. Enjoy your spices. If you want to fast twice a week, go for it, but you don't have to do that. This is the most amazing thing in the world to the hearers. And then once saved, you continue in that same grace. It's not that that saves you and then you fall back into some weird legalistic behavior. Now, it's interesting to note, these people did not continue very long in the grace of God. Antioch of Pisidia was in the region of Galatia. In the New Testament letter to the Galatians, Paul has to rebuke them because they have fallen back into legalism. 
They were teaching and uh, they were hearing taught and teaching others that you are saved by grace plus the keeping of the law of Moses. After Paul's teaching, uh, these false teachers would come in and they'd say, well, you know, yeah, what Paul's telling you is half the truth. Yes, we have to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and it's the keeping of the law. So you need to still be circumcised, and you need to do all of these other things. And so Paul would write to them later and say in Galatians chapter 3, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And he strongly reproved them for so quickly moving from a grace position back to a legal relationship with God. We need this exhortation just as much today. People are always adding some work of righteousness to the free grace of God. People will tell you, for example, that you are saved by grace through faith plus baptism. Are you saved? Yeah, how, uh, what happened? Well, I, was, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I was saved by grace through faith. Okay, have you been baptized in a certain way using certain words? Well, no, not yet. Well, brother, sister, you're, you're not really saved until, and they have one or two little proof texts that they take out of context to try and show that. Are you saved? Yes. Have you ever spoken in tongues? Well, no. Well, I'm sorry, brother, sister. You can't really be saved. And they have some odd proof text and they hammer you to start speaking in tongues until you make up some prayer language of your own so that you can, you know, satisfy that. And, and, and even in our own lives, uh, we add things to our own life and then project them onto others and say, well, this is what the Lord has called me to do, so uh, that's what you ought to do too. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the ticket. You should do this, and then you'll be spiritual. And in counseling sometimes, we want to give people things to do uh, but we have to be careful that we're not giving them works of righteousness by which they feel they're closer to God. And so it's a very kind of a tricky thing. And so we need this exhortation all the time. My greatest fear as the pastor of a church is that uh, our church would become the church at Ephesus that Jesus writes to in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, man, you guys, you have this work and that work. You're doing this. You're kicking out false teachers, and you're on top of all that. But you know what? It's all outward works, and you have no real love for me anymore. You have left your first love. Remember, where you fell from, repent and do the first works. And so we need these exhortations all of the time. And in our personal life, I need to look at my life and say, Lord, am I really walking in grace, continuing grace? Am I exampling the grace of God? Or am I adding burdens to people? You'd be surprised. A lot of times people call from other churches or even within our own church, and they say, hey, I, so-and-so told me this. And I said, well, that's... That's junk. That's garbage. That's just a burden. You, that's, you don't need to do that to be spiritual. And so we want to be very careful that we're not adding burdens to people. Having begun in the Spirit, we're to continue in grace and encourage others to do the same. Don't give people a bunch of rules and regulations to follow. It's grace all the way from start to finish. Not everyone in Antioch of Pisidia responded positively, and in the remaining verses, we'll see that we warn people who are darkened by your light to consider the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas were opposed by many of the Jews. Notice as we work through the verses that the opposition was not to their message. It was to their popularity. 
How sad that people can be so petty when so much is at stake. And so in verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. It's, it's so easy to pass over that or to think it's an exaggeration that, you know, Luke only meant to say that it was an overflow crowd. I think he meant what he said. The, almost the whole city turned out to this event. God can do great things. And I was thinking about this. Maybe this should become a kind of prayer that we have for Kings County, that we would begin to have an expectation not dampened by any discouragement or burdened as if it's our doing, but just to think, hey, God could do this today. I could come to church some Sunday, and every decent Bible-teaching church in Hanford could be packed out to overflowing out into the streets because so many people are hungry for the Word of God. And, it's, you know, it's not uh, because we're not praying enough or, you know, we're not giving. A, it, it has nothing to do with it. This is something God did in this city at that time, and I believe that He could do this and wants to do this again. Our part would just be to be ready for it and to think that God could do it and, and to be excited about seeing something like that happen and maybe to pray towards it. What a blast that would be. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Now, the Jews were contradicting and opposing the meeting. We're not told exactly what they did. I don't know if they were throwing stuff or just, you know, apparently they must have been saying something because they're mentioned as blaspheming. And so apparently Paul was talking about Jesus Christ and they were doing things that would blaspheme the fact that Jesus Christ is God. And so this was just a, a disruption to the meeting. It's like these, these hecklers that you see sometimes. You know, they, uh, they go to a college campus where somebody is giving a speech and then they start heckling from the back or something like that. And, and uh, you know, there's all these altercations. So the Jews were heckling Paul and Barnabas as they were delivering their message. And so in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Necessary is a very important word. It puts us on notice in this verse that God was not through with his chosen people. He was still reaching out to the Jews. If you remember Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, Jesus told him that he would go out and preach to the Gentile world and that he would stand before rulers and kings uh, and magistrates of the Gentile world. And yet he starts in the synagogue of the Jews wherever he goes because he understood that it was necessary for that message to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And one of the reasons it's necessary is to remind us that God is not through with the nation of Israel. God is still not through with them. Currently, we are in what could be called the church age. The gospel is being preached to everyone equally, and all who respond, whether they are Jew or Gentile, are saved and become members of the body of Christ on earth, the church. The church age will end when Jesus returns in the clouds to resurrect the dead and rapture the living believers. 
Then God will turn his attention back to the Jews, to the physical descendants of Abraham, and he will fulfill all of his unconditional promises to them. In the meantime, he's brought them back to their ancient land, their promised land, and they are there as a cup of trembling that troubles the whole world, which itself is a fulfillment of ancient Bible prophecy. Now, why is this important? It's important because as you're out in the Christian community, you'll encounter people who have various ideas about Bible prophecy, about when the Lord is coming back and, or whether he's coming back, and, and different ideas about, you know, various things in that realm. And most, sometimes, you know, especially if you're a young Christian, you think, oh, wow, you mean you don't believe in the rapture? You're not looking for Jesus to return to set up a kingdom on earth and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And you're confused and you start to think there's all these different ways of thinking about prophecy. And though that is true to a certain extent, a lot of times the error that these people are making is that they have not factored in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. There are a lot of Orthodox Christian denominations and a lot of Christians who believe God is just done with Israel, that he turned his back on Israel because they turned their backs on him, and now all of the promises that God made to Israel belong to you and I as the church. And if you ask them what place God has for the Jew, well, they don't even know what you're talking about. No place. They want to get saved, they can get saved, but there's no continuing plan for Israel. If you don't understand the difference between the physical descendants of Israel, of, of Abraham, the nation of Israel, and the church, you'll never understand Bible prophecy. It's no wonder you're confused. It's, it's impossible to understand. And so, you know, God has a very different plan for the nation of Israel. It will pick up again once we're caught off the earth. It's the great tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, described by Daniel as the 70th week that is coming upon Israel. And so it's very important that we see this necessity of God's plan with Israel. One important reason is this. If God turned his back on Israel because they failed him, could he do the same again? What's hindering him from turning his back on us and starting over again with another group? God cannot turn his back on his unconditional promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and the patriarchs. He will fulfill them in his time, and that's what uh, we read in and through Bible prophecy. Now, the Jews Paul addressed rejected Jesus Christ. They made a willful decision. Since no one is really worthy of salvation, what might Paul mean when he said that they judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life? Well, it might be a kind of spiritual sarcasm. They believed they were worthy of salvation because they were Jews keeping God's law. When, when you see Jesus encountering the Jews in the Gospels, they believed that they were saved sons and daughters of Abraham on their way to heaven simply because they were Jews and they had the law of God and the temple of God. They believed they were worthy of salvation. Thus, they would judge themselves unworthy of any other method of salvation. They didn't want to hear about salvation by grace through faith because it meant that they had to repent of their sins and that Jew and Gentile alike could be saved. And so to them, that was an unworthy method of salvation. And so this is what I believe Paul 
uh, has in mind when he says they judge themselves unworthy of God's salvation. Paul was not just blowing off steam here. He wasn't personally frustrated with them. He was acting upon the word of God. He said in verse 47, For the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. The quote is from Isaiah 49, verse 6. It was originally intended to describe the mission of the nation of Israel. As a nation, God's chosen people were to be a light to all the other nations of the world. The thing I like about the nation of Israel is that they began as with a Gentile. Uh, you think about it. The, God looked down and he said, I need to develop a people group, a brand new people group out of the nations of the world who will see that salvation is by grace through faith and will be a light to all the other nations. He says, I'm going to pick Abraham, a Gentile pagan idolater. I'm going to save him, and then he, his descendants are going to become the nation of Israel. Later on, God says, I didn't choose them because they were the greatest of the people or any. I chose them by grace and put my name upon them to be a light to the rest of the world. Israel, sadly, horribly failed in their mission. They weren't interested in sharing the message of God's grace with the Gentile nations. And so then God began to apply this verse to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah. He would be a light to the world, and that's why Jesus is called the light of the world. And now that he is raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, believers like you and I are the lights that are set everywhere in this dark world. And so in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. You betcha they were glad. And this is a great understatement. Hey, how are you? You know, if you had a man on the street interview, I understand you've just been saved by salvation, or you've just been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. How does that make you feel? Glad. I think it's more like the Cream song from the 70s. How many of you remember the, the group Cream? Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, super group of the, of the 70s. And one of their songs was, I'm so glad. And that's all they say in the whole song over and over again. I'm so glad, I'm so glad, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. Then they go up an octave. I'm so glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. I remember listening to that song. It's a great rock riff. And my mom walking in and saying, Hey, Jeannie, what are they so glad about? I mean, she got the impression that they were really, really glad. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I'm glad. I mean, it was, I'm so glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. I mean, that, you know, and that's what's happening. I mean, these people, you have to understand the bondage they were under. And, and you know, they, for the first time in their lives, they could go home and enjoy their spices. Hey, you want some pour on the oregano? Let's go. You know, I, I, it's all, you know, it's all the same. I don't have to tithe my basil leaves anymore. I mean, let it go. Let her rip. And so they were glad. Saved by grace through faith, their sins were forgiven, justified and assured of heaven. Glorified the word of the Lord means that they began to order their lives by the power of the indwelling spirit to bring glory to Jesus Christ. It means they, too, were now lights set 
in the world to lead others to Christ. And then it says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, that's an interesting phrase. And it's sadly one of those phrases that men have argued over for centuries. It's read by some as a proof that God in his foreknowledge predestined certain people to be saved while passing over others. It's read by them to mean that only those who were chosen by God in eternity past can be saved, and therefore the vast majority of human beings are passed over and will remain lost with no hope of salvation because God never chose them. Now, I can almost see how you might come to that conclusion, but you don't need to come to that conclusion. This is not what the Bible teaches. First of all, look at the context in which we find this verse. Paul had just established that salvation was not to be limited to a certain group, to the Jews, but was available to Jew and Gentile alike. If anything, the context of these verses is that God is extending his invitation of salvation to everyone. Now, second, even if the words could be shown to mean that God chose only particular Gentiles from before the foundation of the world, it does not cancel out free will and the ability to choose God. In the Bible, God's ability to ordain people to salvation never operates apart from their ability to respond to the gospel by faith as an act of free will. God's choosing you and your free will to choose are simultaneously true in the Bible. The problem we have is that we want to reconcile those two seemingly contradictory truths. And gigantic uh, systematic theologies have been invented by men to prove one position or the other. Either God is completely sovereign and men have no free will. Therefore, if you're to get saved, God chose you before the foundation of the world. He saves you, and then you're able to exercise faith. In other words, you're saved before you have faith in Jesus Christ because you were chosen to be saved. The inevitable conclusion of that is that millions or perhaps billions of people that God could have saved, he chose to pass over, and they remain damned with no hope of salvation, no matter how much you preach the gospel to them. The alternative to that, or the other side of that, is men have so much free will that God is in heaven fretting, you know, whether things are going to work out the way he planned or not. And uh, I argue with people almost on a daily basis about these things especially uh, more and more people are falling into, you know, the, the camp of, well, yeah, God is sovereign, and, you know, gee, it's just too bad for some people who didn't get chosen. But, gee, that's what the Bible teaches. No, no, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, and it teaches that man has a free will and is responsible. Well, I, I don't know how you reconcile that. There's a lot of stuff I can't totally reconcile, you can't explain to me the Trinity. I mean, you can tell me about eggs and water and, you know, that, a, that an egg has a shell and a yolk and, and a white or that water can exist as steam and water and ice. And, but that, that's, that doesn't explain the Trinity. Why do I believe that God exists as, one, uh, as three persons but is one God? Because that's what the Bible teaches. 
And my answer to, to why I believe that is, well, this is, here's what this passage says, and here's what this passage says. This is what the Bible teaches. And so when people ask me about these issues, you know, about God choosing and man's free will, I say, yeah, God chose you. If you're saved, God chose you before the foundation of the world. Oh, well, that means I don't have a free will. No, it doesn't. Because, you know, the Bible also says that you are free to choose and held responsible. Well, I don't understand that. Okay. So, is that what the Bible teaches or not? And the truth is, when you buy into one of these theologies, a systematic theology, you are denying some of what the Bible teaches in favor of what you want to believe. And it's just, I think it's sad. Paul didn't say to these Jews, well, you guys must not have been appointed by God. You must not be among the elect. Tough luck. The Jews actively, personally rejected Jesus Christ as an act of their free will they were held accountable for it. And then the Gentiles believed and were saved. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Light after light was being set as life after life was being changed. Verse 50, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. Influential Jews probably went to the Roman officials and convinced them that Paul and Barnabas were interfering with the political peace by stirring up religious dissent, and they expelled them from the city. You talk about persecution. How would you like it this afternoon while you're having lunch if the authorities came and said, are you, uh, do you go to Calvary Chapel? Yeah. Okay, you're expelled from Hanford. Well, where am I going to go? Uh, Riverdale. <laughs> Leighton. I mean, you know, we don't care as long as you're not in you're gone. I mean, you know, and then they watch, you know, I mean, they expelled them from the city, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. If you were treated inhospitably, you would symbolically shake the dust off your feet when leaving. I think it might have to do with the fact that when you, uh, if you were treated with hospitality, a host would take you in and wash your feet. He would wash the dust off your feet. And so if you were treated inhospitably, left with dust on your feet, you'd shake it off outside their door. Uh, and this is a big symbolic gesture with the Jews to show that they had not extended the proper hospitality. Now, again, I don't think Paul and Barnabas acted out of personal anger. The Lord had instructed his followers to do this in regions where they were unwelcome. It was a serious gesture among the Jews that indicated you were responsible uh, for rejecting God's offer of eternal life. I don't really think we should be looking for opportunities to shake the dust off of our feet. You know, I mean, just if you're at work tomorrow and somebody isn't really getting the gospel, don't take your shoes off and pound them together. <laughs> They'll think you're Nikita Khrushchev, probably. Or some, didn't he? Remember Khrushchev? How many of you remember Khrushchev? He stayed in Motel 6s. <laughs> At the United Nations one time, he took off his shoe and was beating on the table, you know. I love these. This is a complete aside, but about once a month on the news, they have one of these political assemblies like a, a Congress or a Senate from some country where people go crazy and start punching each other. You know, it's, it's like, you know, they're, they're there to make the laws of the land and they can't get along with each other and they get into fist fights and stuff. It's, it's great. But anyway... <laughs> I think we should apply this on more of a personal, spiritual level. If you are badly treated for your witness, then learn to shake it off. Just shake it off. Don't get all upset about it. Paul, in this situation, this was kind of an official Holy Spirit moment where Paul was saying, okay, we came to the Jew first, 
Now we're turning to the Gentile, and this is a definite decision we're making here in Antioch of Pisidia from this moment on. We don't really do that anymore. We don't go to the Jew first and, and then, you know, to the Gen- We're just sharing Christ with everybody. So we're not really called to shake the dust off of our feet. And so I just think we need to shake it off and keep ministering to people. You don't know if that person who is rejecting you or even persecuting you might not one day turn and receive Christ. And so in verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Neither were the believers who were left shook up by the persecution. It brought out the best in them. To put it in the context of our imagery, the darker things got around them, the more they shone as lights set in place to draw men to Jesus. Uh, And I, I would suggest that they started to understand how normal and natural this was, that this was such a radical message. Of course it's going to be opposed in a spiritual warfare you know, it's, it's amazing that you guys didn't get expelled earlier. Go ahead, you guys, hey, this is great. You guys go to Iconium. You continue to spread this message. We'll take it from here. We understand this. And, and when it says disciples, now you know that Paul had established a church. He had established a group of people who are now meeting together uh, to talk about the things of the Lord and encourage one another and edify one another. The people in Antioch of Pisidia had tried Greek reasoning. They had tried Roman rule. They had tried Hebrew religion. At that point in the first century, I don't know what we th- you might think about the first century. Uh, sometimes I think we think everybody who is not us is really just a caveman. You know, that, but I mean, these guys are smart. Really, really smart people uh, politically, uh, you know, and economically. They understood mathematics to a greater level. I mean, I can't do anything without a calculator anymore. You know, and they, they were, I mean, these people are smart. And they had Greek reasoning. You know, they, in school, they still make you read Plato and all this stuff as if it's some fantastic thing that you've got to read. The Iliad, the Odyssey, all this Greek stuff. And they had Roman rule. Whatever you think about it, I mean, you know, the Roman Empire was a, was a big thing, and, and it was successful until it died from within. And they had Hebrew religion, the, the only true religion that has ever really been set forth, what, you know, God's own religion. They had all of that, and yet they were completely unsatisfied until Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel and they were drawn to the light. It doesn't matter what people are trying in our day and age. None of it can satisfy, but we know that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women. The book of Ecclesiastes says God has placed eternity in your heart. I I don't know exactly everything that that might mean, but I think it at least means that we have a sense that there is someone greater than ourselves, that there is a God who can be known. And we see this in all the cultures of the world as they're seeking some greater spiritual reality. And so there's a, there is a hunger and a frustration, a, a sense of no satisfaction in the lives of people. And, and they are trying various things. It doesn't really matter what they're trying. All of it will fall short unless it's Jesus Christ. And if we're saved, then we are the light that is set in, a ver- in various places so that those who are in the dark can be drawn to the light that is powered by grace. They're going to be drawn to the real thing, to the genuine article. 
We are those lights having begun in the Spirit. We simply need to continue in the Spirit and let God do His work. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for these things. And again, Lord, just uh, picking up on the events of this chapter, Lord, if You would, just bring the whole city out here and to the other pulpits, Lord, that are talking about Jesus and offering salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Bring that revival, Lord. We know that you can, and we know that it's your heart. And I pray that we would focus on it, that we'd not get discouraged as uh, it tarries, Lord, because with you, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. But we would love to see it, Lord, and be a part of it. Just in the meantime, I pray that we would just come and and present ourselves before you as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service, and go about uh, being lights set in the world, sharing the grace of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Let's stand together.